Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi everybody, before we get into the podcast there, just to let you know, we are back in Cork's Opera House on August the 22nd to open the Cork Podcast Festival. Which is an absolute honour, and myself and James are thrilled to be a part of such a great night, particularly when you have so many fantastic podcasts coming from Cork on the night and the week as well. Yeah, no, listen, it's great to be part of the podcast scene. And we have a great guest on the night too, a friend of ours, Brezzy, a mental health advocate who's got a great story. Among other things, he's uh, played Munster or uh, rugby with Leinster and he had a panic attack live on TV and he does his own show now around his own journey. So uh, it's going to be powerful. Yeah, he's just going to talk about his story growing up and when it all started for him in relation to his mental health and how he came through it and what he does today around it. You know, he does a lot of work within schools today and helps children to be able to cope much, much better with their own mental health and he creates programs and stuff like that and he does a lot of funding. So it should be a fantastic night. Yeah, we'll have a bit of entertainment, a bit of music and a bit of a crack as well. So I hope to see you there August the 22nd. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.ie or Cork Opera House box office. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Two Norries podcast. I'm your host James and I'm joined as always by my good friend Timmy Long. Hi everyone. We are up in Ballymun in the Axis Theatre recording a few podcasts. Yeah, um, we've been here before as well and the lads were very kind to leave us stay again today and we've a very special guest James haven't we? Yeah, we have Dr Brian Penny I know you worked hard for that PhD so it's appropriate yeah. that we you know, give you the title but it's a long time coming we've been looking to get John for a long time so uh, great to have you here how are you? Great great really good delighted to be here great having a chat I've been dying to meet just for a long long time now at this stage it has been a long time coming yeah. but um, yeah really good really good yeah. keeping, keeping well you have yeah. a similar story to ourselves you're in recovery <coughs> and then you went down the education route to help re- rebuild your life so before we get into the neuroscience because that, that, that was your area of uh, study do you want to take us back to where you grew up what family life was like what your childhood was like yeah, um, God, every every addiction story always starts in childhood, doesn't it? It's it's um it's an interesting one, and I often say like my story of addiction started from the moment I was born. So I came into the world with a condition known as intestinal malrotation, which literally meant that my guts were twisted, and I was getting very very little nutrition into my body. So. To cut a long story short, um, I basically had an operation without a general anaesthetic. This was sort of based on very weak medical evidence pre-1985. This is what they've done with infants. And it's interesting. I've actually met several people in addiction that had an operation as an infant. 
And although I obviously didn't cognitively remember the operation, I don't remember it. It's like that trauma, the body keeps the score. I like a set an imprint in me and I had complications from that surgery. So for the first year of my life, I literally cried every single day without the proper pain med. And I genuinely believe, fiercely believe that that just set me up as a finely tuned anxiety machine. And as I grew up in childhood, I was just hyper vigilant, always looking around, worrying about the future, agitated, tense. And I lived in an area where there was lots of drugs, lots of violence, lovely area, great area in fairness, like some great people in it, but just very challenged area. And I was always going to take drugs. That's what people done but I thought it was too smart to get addicted but because of my past trauma and the challenges that I faced when I started doing drugs it just filled looked like felt like it filled a hole in my soul it obviously wasn't filling the hole but it just gave me a sense of peace that I'd never experienced before and it just really grabbed me in from there you know from doing all the academic stuff later on in life just bringing it back from doing all the academic stuff and, and looking at how the body, the, the biology of the body and the mind and the connection and the whole that and the trauma, did all that stuff from childhood then start making sense to you later on in life when you were able to look back and, yeah. and understand that's why you became addicted? Yeah, 100%. And it was only when I was writing the book. So I wrote my book in 2020 and I was doing a lot of research around writing the book and I always knew I had that operation and I always knew I had those early traumas, but I never really completely related them to that. And it was only when I was looking at the research of trauma, like basically when we're traumatised, it's it's the fear center of our brains literally lighten up and it leaves an imprint. So it's basically, it's a learning experience. It's your body and your brain doing a good job. So the trauma is basically a message to the body that this could happen again. So we are going to keep you on hyper alert to protect you in the future. But it's not going to happen again. We live in a, in a different world today where it's the, the, our evolution and how our bodies were designed prepared us for the world thousands and thousands of years ago. But in the world we live in today, all of the other challenges were seen as potential traumas. And that's what had just set me up. And I was just always anxious, always agitated, always worrying about my family dying. And these simple little things, I was on my way over here today and I was sort of processing and reflecting on what we might talk about today. And a memory popped up into my head of my dad being a vigilante. Mm. And I remember when we moved to Blanchardstown when I was about seven years of age, it was a memory of my, my dad going out being a vigilante. I didn't know what he was doing. I think he was fighting the younger people of the area or protecting the area. And I was just absolutely petrified. My dad's going to die. And that's, I was just afraid everyone around me was going to die, that I was going to die. And it all came from that earlier trauma that just set me up for this red alert system where I was just constantly in, in, in a, in a, in a, mode of fright and panic mm. yeah, you, you mentioned uh, The Body Keeps the Score which is the title of a great book Bessel van der Kolk yeah, yeah. Um, we, we did a podcast of Bessel van der Kolk wow yeah if people want to watch that on YouTube or listen on Spotify but one of mm. the things he said to us on the podcast was uh, trauma is not what happened chat he says it's what happens inside you yeah. when an event occurs Cause some people can look at Timmy's story or all of my own saying well I didn't have that so I should be okay but it's not like people can have a trauma it's not about the event yeah because like even in families like children can have a different mother yeah because they all experience that woman differently because she responds to them differently so it's like and because different personalities and different sensitivities if me and Timmy come across a violent scene 
I might be traumatised from it, he might take it in his stride. Yes. Yeah. Or if we come across an animal being hurt, I might take it in my stride, he might mm. be traumatised. So it's not the actual event, it's your, it's what happens yeah. inside. How we internalise that event and then how we fuel that event. Like something mightn't phase somebody, but then it's like a little wound and you can keep on opening that wound by thinking about that and reliving that event in a certain way. It's Trauma is really interesting, but I love that angle. It's and it's, it's how you internalise it. Yeah, and there's another fact of it as well. It's, do you know, when when we're young, we don't know how to be, be able to process stuff. Do you know, when yeah. emotional stuff comes up for us, stuff that we get hurt with, we're not able to process it because we don't understand how to do it. You yeah. know, particularly if you're cut off anyway. But when you do be able to learn it like later on in life when I when I stopped using alcohol and drugs and I started to do a lot of personal development myself I started to do some form of meditation where I was going back into the early childhood young adult and I was going back in there and what I was doing is what I what was actually happening for me back then was when I was visualising my young self a really really traumatised kid completely cut off completely introverted cut off from emotions I went back and I came across this child that just rebelled against everything it would hit me beat me kick me push me it would it just had no trust for any form of human being and after a time I kept going back and leaving them know I was there during the meditation and stuff would come up and I'd what I was doing this is what I was doing I as an adult know know how to process stuff when it comes up okay and what I was doing was going back to that young child and showing him how to process, being there for him and showing him how to process this stuff, how to feel it, telling him it's okay. Because I didn't have that as a young child. Yeah. Telling him it's okay. I'm here for you. And after a while, after a few years, what started to happen was this young child wasn't running or kicking or anything. He'd come over, he'd see me, he'd play with me, he'd sit in my knee. And I know no, it might sound crazy to a lot of people, but if you look into it, it was all this childhood trauma. I was able to go back and able to heal this young child. And it's very, very doable. You know, it's very doable for for people, but you have to understand it and you have to be somebody who <laughs> likes to meditate as well. Yeah. I, I was exactly the same. So I, I done that inner child work as well. And I literally visualized and cradled that little kid. And I think when you think of trauma, it, there's no safety within your body. And if your body doesn't feel safe, nothing else is going to feel safe. Like it's internalized, then becomes externalized pressure as well. And I literally, again, I just says, I'm safe. I have you now. So I visualized sitting with that little kid and other, other traumas as well at six years of age and other ages. And I basically went back and visited that little kid, put my arm around him and says, I have you now everything's okay I've got your back yeah. and it's like reframing those earlier memories just makes a huge difference then when you recall them again you're sort of, that's the healing process yeah. right there really powerful stuff and you can do it sorry James no. I'm just finishing this you can do that I, I was very hard on myself with a lot of stuff that I've, I've done in addiction as well yeah. and I started to realise like I'm, I'm able to give this child that bit of love and care and try to love him and help him to get through this period what I was doing was I was beating this guy up from my 20s to my 30s. I was slaughtering him, beating him up. But I wasn't beating him up. I was the one that was feeling it. So I started to understand, I'm going to have to, you have to go back here. And, and, and well. like this fella didn't know any better either. He hadn't yeah. a clue. He was just doing what he thought he needed to do to cope in life. Yeah. And I started going back there. And, and you would not believe 
the amount of freedom I got from that, going back and telling him, you know what, it's okay. Mm. It's okay, you didn't know any better. And started giving him a bit of love. And I tell her, this guy was more lost than the child. And that's the truth. Mad. We did a podcast with a woman, Bridget, and uh, she was consumed by fear, anxiety and stuff like that, but didn't know what happened or they couldn't have no recollection yeah. of a traumatic event. But when she did some work then, it transpired that there was a very traumatic pregnancy and birth. Wow. And that was after emotionally scarring her. Not cocked, she didn't, she wasn't conscious of it. But she was able to work through it then when she, you know, it was identified. But um, so like people might be listening to this now and they'd be yeah. saying, yeah, I can't remember anything. But I do, I do have that feeling Brian is talking about. Mm, yeah. But I can't remember anything like the good childhood. But maybe it was before your memories, you know what I mean? So you, but you can still work through that. It's not, you don't have to be able to remember the event to work through it. But what was it like if you're in school? You're obviously very smart. Were you bright in school or... Yeah, I, I was quite good in school. I, I, like, I wasn't, there was no exception. Like, when people sort of often relate a PhD with super smarts, that's yeah. just not the case. It's yeah. probably, a, a, um, it's a, I would say my addiction nearly helped me because it's about strategizing for a PhD. I made it about, um, how it would I, how I could make it easy because I was a little bit older, but it's about grit and determination as well. I think you mentioned hard work at the start when you said about the thing. There was, there's a, definitely a lot of hard work, yeah. but I was good in school. Even though I, I was worried a lot, I had a lot of anxiety, I was good in school. I had high hopes for myself. I really did have high hopes for myself. I was good at sport. I was really good at football. I was never going to make it as a footballer, but there was talk I might have gone and made it as a footballer. That was never really the truth in retrospect when I look back. Mm. But I had all of these high hopes. But once I found drugs, and I always remember, um, people often ask me what was the gateway to drugs for me. And all of my friends had started smoking cigarettes at that stage. And I remember thinking, these are all stupid smoking cigarettes, dirty smoking your lungs, he is mad. And I was injured from football at the time. We were sitting on, the, we call them the gammers, they're like the green boxes for the football dressing rooms. We were sitting on top of them and the lads were smoking. I was only 14 years of age and one of them says, oh, the head buzz you get off that. Like a light bulb went off. I think it was the age I was at. Oh, I don't, I wouldn't smoke, but I like the sound of a head buzz. And it was a big, dirty Samson to roll up tobacco. And that was me first uh, ever. But I loved the head buzz. Uh, and within weeks, I was smoking hash, taking tablets, blowing petrol in the fields. And it just escalated really quick because it gave me that relief away from that anxiety and that tormented mind, that compulsive thinking. And it just escalated very, very quickly. But still with this belief, I'm going to become someone and I'd never be an addict. I'll never be like them. That was the, the thing, whatever damn bloody well was. But um, it, it had me from that first moment. I just didn't know it. And it was just it was just pulling me in slowly but surely all the time. Do you said earlier on, your dad was involved in the vigilante group. Yeah. Was that against drug users and would drugs be very frowned upon in your family? Um, drugs would have been very frowned upon in my family even though my mum and dad like amazing, incredible people like have a great family and yeah. the support system I had I'm only realising even in the last two years how lucky I am with my family I didn't realise actually when I got clean uh, to start off with but um, they had their own challenges with alcohol and um, although drugs weren't in the family alcohol played a role in the family as well and I had a few traumas around that too but um, they just my mum often says like she just she just thought we were too smart to do drugs. 
well, she didn't have the education or the realisation that it's not about smarts. Trauma is the driver, you know, that way. And I imagine if I grew up in a very privileged area with plenty of money and no violence and drugs around, I'd have found another poison to heal that pain if the pain was there. I would have experimented and moving on. Moving on. You would have found in a way, like, you know, that's that's the reality. You've, you said something there and it, and it got me thinking about something in my own life. When I look at my own kids, I always think... Um, I, do you know we come where we live? Like there's a lot of drugs and and everything that goes with that lifestyle. But myself and my wife, we've often sat at the table and we started to talk about the kids and and just thinking will they be okay as they're getting older and they're the kind of groups that they're starting to settle in with. And we say to each other, yeah, they'll be grand, they'll be grand, you know. Yeah. They'll they'll be not. They'll be they're sensible, you know. They know what they're. They have good awareness. You said something there, like it actually really doesn't matter where the awareness is there or not. It's really about if something has been challenging in their life and they haven't dealt with it or processed it and they find drink or drugs and it just takes the edge off of from could quite easily get addicted. Yeah. What what would you, what would you say to a parent maybe around something like that? How how to be able to help them to deal with something a child now that's maybe experimenting yeah, where where I go to with that straight away is, right, there was a lot of us that tried heroin when we were younger. Like it was a big gang of us, but only two of us got chronically addicted to it. And it was the two that struggled most with our emotions. So for me, I, I often say that, like, I don't feel, I didn't have, I obviously had a drug problem, but the drugs weren't their problem. Under the bonnet, it was an anxiety problem and it was a mental health problem. So what I would say is the parents is don't be worrying about the drugs. They're going to be out there and your kids will come across them. It's about giving them the awareness, the education, but the coping tools to deal with our deal with our inner world emotionally and psychologically so just focus on that and give them those tools which is it's really difficult and I don't think it's all about like telling them how to be mindful and practicing mindfulness with them it's not really about that I think it's about giving them a language system and helping them to process emotions giving them the, the language around emotions listening to your kids because if you don't listen to your kids and you preach to your kids well guess what they're not going to talk to you when they have a challenge so it's listening to understand and trying to show empathy and perspective because the development of kids is so different to adults and we tend to suffer with the course of assumption and think they see the world similarly to us but they, they're coming at it from different perspectives so it's trying to jump into their shoes be empathetic and give them that foundational emotional health so if drugs do come on the scene they'll be impervious to it when we were driving up from Cork a while ago we were talking we were reminiscing about the good old days or the bad old days the bad old days but it is a mix all the yeah, time it isn't is it yeah because there's, there's great crack within yeah. it as well like, it has to be said but we were thinking about like uh, you know the talking about your feelings and emotions it just wasn't done because there was no mental health literacy there was no yeah. emotional intelligence and what we were talking about was like let's say if I'm a and I can remember a few times where, where, where I meet one of the boys, like John Paul, Tommy, Damien, and like you could see they're down in themselves. Yeah. But all you knew was like, come on, we go to the off-license. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make a giant. That was that was your way of looking after him. Yeah. Or if I come down there, I could see my head, like, come on, I take you on, and you're going drinking for the night. But that, and you know, some people look at uh, people like that and say, he's a bad influence, but he's probably helping them in the best way he knows how. Yeah. Do you know, because we didn't have... 
emotional intelligence, mental. We didn't have the language. Yeah. We didn't know anything else. All we know is that we know how to get rid of the, the head. Short term. A few yeah. bags, a few cans. Yeah. Bag of gear, a few tablets or a giant. That was all you had. And people look at um, drug pushers or people that's using drugs or they're bad influence on my kids. Maybe they're not bad influence on their kids. Maybe they're, they're trying their best to help your kid in the best way they know how. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and do you know what I always say? Like, it's it's because I, I, I struggled with the, with the book. Like, I do a lot of corporate work and I started saying, geez, what should I put into the book? And it was Lynn Rowan, who I know is a good friend of mine, a pal of yours, you had her on the podcast. She says, just speak your truth. So I just spoke my truth and I put it all in the book. And there was no stigma against that. I'm not too sure if they all read the book, to be quite honest, but like in terms of the corporate world, but there was, I'd never received stigma of that. But what I try to get across is that most drug pushers are drug users on another day. Like to be yeah. one day, I'd be selling drugs that I, I get, like I, I come across 200 quid, so I'll buy a big bag of heroin, sell a few bags. The yeah. next time, next <laughs> week, he'd be selling it to me. It's not this drug dealers and drug <laughs> users. It's it's interactive and it's more nuanced than that. There's obviously the bigger drug dealers who are like bringing it in from the country and that's a different element of it. But like, they're all helping each other. Do you heard the of or the drug dealer, they're giving out the drugs for free. For free, they get putting it in the letterbox and yeah. then they're addicted. That literally never happened. <laughs> never, yeah. never. You never got fucking that. Imagine a bag of heroin coming in a letterbox. She wouldn't know what to do with it. It's a great marketing tool for... <laughs> It's a great marketing tool for some of these you know, uh, films that they yeah. sell for drug dealers. Like, oh, I only came across that. that like, I hadn't heard it in a while, and someone had said it. I think it was somebody down in Cork, and he says, "Oh, they're all giving them all the drugs, and yeah. that's why." And as if I, I just, I, I don't, you know, the guy was haunting, and I didn't want to yeah. go against him, so I just started just says, "I just won't say it," but it's yeah. not, it's not the reality. No, oh, the reality is, like, if I was selling drugs, okay, and I had ten bags of crack, I wouldn't be giving one of them bags away. <laughs> For nothing, because I want to be talking that. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I mean? That's the reality. That is the reality of it. Like, when you're taking your own drugs, like yeah. you say, why would I give it away when I can use it myself? You There's know? no long-term thinking of building an uh, building no, no, a, no. building a marketing campaign around. I think, I think it just looks right in films. Yeah, to make the drug dealers look at, like in the bad listen it's wrong to sell drugs as well we'd have to be honest yeah. you know what yeah. I mean because there's there's another side to selling drugs that if the wrong person gets them at the wrong time or a child gets their hands in them or if someone drops the drugs and a child picks them up like the consequences there are probably fatal yeah. so it's not a great thing either but listen when you remember come from the, places we, we do that is the reality yeah. of the story do you remember in the 90s during the rave scene the ecstasy scene there was a girl over in Essex, a uh, young girl, she took an E, but uh, she kind of panicked. It wasn't the E that killed her, but, you know, uh, during the rave scene, we actually was always like, you have to hydrate yourself, you know? Yeah. But she panicked and she drank, like, way too much water and got fluid on the brain and passed away. I've heard but that. that effectively yeah. ended the 1990s rave scene and the ecstasy scene. Wow. And it brought a lot of heat on the dealers in Essex at the time and a lot of heat on cr criminals in general in, in England. And that's how the Essex boys ended up getting taken out. Okay. Even killed in a Range Rover. What was that over yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. But like, fucking huge diversity yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to show, like, you don't know when you're when you're taking drugs, you don't know the consequences or the ripple effect. Yeah. But, you know, just bringing back to your own story, you said to us earlier on that uh, you were a functioning addict for a long time. Will you explain what that is and what it was like for you? 
Yeah, so I was a functional. I worked for a long, long time. I, I think we spoke, like I worked in a, I had a job for 17 years in the graphics industry for a pharmaceutical company. And I remember my first day going into that job at 17 years of age and I had tinfoil and heroin in a John Player blue box with me too or in a couple of cigarettes. Like I went in there doing heroin 17 years later. When I left that job, that's that was the end of me, near nearing the end of me. I was in there seventeen years. Same job. Same job. Now the last now and ironically, as I as I mentioned beforehand, I some of the customers we had was Pinewood Health Pinewood Healthcare. So I was designing the methadone labels. I was designing the anti anxiety medications sitting Anxy there. Anxi cam. I sitting there absolutely dying for some Anxi cam and I'm looking at the bleeding labels all day, like panic the the anxiety. I still struggle to sit at my computer and um, for a few hours clicking on the mouse because it's actually I create an association of when I was sitting in that job suffering so badly with anxiety just dying for the, the, the bell to go so I could actually go and do drugs like it was horrific How, do you know that for me right if I was working and there's stages in my life where I did work but when I got paid it would be a huge blow and I'd lose the job and I know we're heroin as well, like fucking hell, enough is never enough, do you know? How, yeah. how did you find the balance or how did you manage to maintain it for so long? It was really weird. So it was like, it was a progression where like I lived with a delusion that I wasn't a real addict. And even though I was on a methadone program, I was a registered addict for 12 of those years from, so from 23, 22, 23 until I was 35. So 12, 13 of the years that I was in that job, I was a registered addict. So I'd be going to the chemist, drinking me methadone. I'd be going to the clinic and giving your urines to get me script. But I tried to believe I wasn't a real addict and an element of not being a real addict, whatever the hell a real addict was, the transporting version of an addict. Um, I tried to not limit me use, but I tried to not get too mental with it. So I would sort of use, I'd get up in the morning, take a few tablets, do a few lines of gear. During lunchtime, do a few lines of gear. I tried to just keep the edge off until I got home from work. Now, when I got home from work, then there'd be loads of tablets. I'd do two two bags of gear. I'd always be trying to keep a little bit for the next morning because yeah. I was so consumed with not being sick. Yeah, yeah. and I always wanted to have drugs but then I'd go on binges like I'll never forget one time me and my best mate um, he's, he's still in the depths of it he is now but like we, we had we call it I'll, I'll laugh now it's probably not even funny but we call it smackathon. so we we <laughs> pretended we went down that was the, like fun yeah <laughs> we pretended to go down to Galway for the weekend my man and I were going away and I think we bought like about yeah, it was about eight, five six hundred quids worth of gear and we just stayed in the in the in the gaff for the weekend the lines closed told all our mates we were in Galway and just done a smackathon for the weekend so there was mad excesses in some areas and then, but it was just a slow build over time. And by the time I was hitting me late 20s, it was all getting really, really bad, really, really dark. And then by the time I was hitting me 30s, I was just consuming massive amounts of drugs. Coke was gone. I wasn't doing crack or coke. Crack wasn't really big on the scene. I was doing a little bit of that, but the coke, I wasn't doing coke anymore. I was all just built downers to numb the pain. Yeah. So gear wasn't really working for me anymore. That was the reality of like, I was messing around. I, I had a chronic fear of needles, but I start injecting here and there, but I was never, it was never, it, it was never something I could do on my own all of the time. So I was lucky enough to stay away from consistent intravenous use. Do you know, from all that smoking gear, like, because you it was so consistent for so many years. Yeah. 
how how did your body look? How did you physically look? And even even your teeth? You yeah, know, you can see when someone's smoking gear, like yeah, they lose. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. They, they lose, what is this? They lose respect for themselves in terms yeah. of how they look. I, did, I didn't shower for two years. I often say that. It was in, in my 30s was a time when I didn't shower for two years. And I laugh about that. I remember reading an article one day that Brad Pitt uses baby wipes on, uh, on set. I remember thinking, it's good enough for Brad, good enough for me. Mm. And I pretty much barely showered for two years. I did not shower for two years. That's a lie. I didn't brush my teeth for two years, but I barely showered for two years as well. And my teeth were in bits. I used to put tin foil on my teeth mm. to stop the t- and collect the extra gear on the tin foil as well. So I'd have the, the teeth thing on me, on me and I'd have the two or... But my teeth were in bits. I've gotten a lot of work done on my teeth to get them fixed up. But I remember saying it to the dentist. I said, how did I not lose my teeth? Especially with the methadone for so many years as well. I know it wasn't a sugary methadone. It was the green methadone. But he just says, thank your parents for that. You have good genetics. You're very lucky to have your teeth. But what it mostly done to me, the drugs, I, 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 it looked it looked like I was overweight. If anyone sees pictures of me back in the day, it looked oh, like I was overweight. Just this bloat because it was the, the, the benzos, the methadone. Yeah. I was drinking a lot of vodka as well, combining, just combining drugs just to numb feelings. So, and I had this real waxy kind of a look. I remember my sister was saying, it's like, it looked, if you touched off, you looked like you were in a wax museum. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that sort of sweat, that layer of sweat that'd be on your face. Yeah, and you know, my, yeah. my, my face, mm-hmm. it was like, it felt like fucking foreskin. My skin, my skin was so <laughs> fragile. And yeah. it was like that wax, you're talking yeah. like that. As if it that, would break away. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. fragile, so weak, so yeah. fucking... Not able to look after yourself, you know, no, no nutrition, uh, no, uh, pure neglect. Yeah, well I, well, I don't know what you ate, but for me, it was chicken calves and monster munch. That's what I used monster to eat. Monster munch. Chicken, right, chicken yeah, calves yeah. and monster munch. That was me go Adam to. and Paul. Yeah. 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 How yeah. Did you the stomach? yeah. How does someone hold on a job for 17 years in active addiction? And and we know how active it was. And yeah. it's completely out of control. You know, maybe not for maybe from the 95, but when you go on, then 
you're at it for the night and yeah. you still have to get up in the morning at seven or whatever to get into work for eight. How does someone actually be able to keep a job? You obviously must have been punctual. You turned up, you got the job done to say that they kept you on there. The last year when they started looking into it, I was late 170-something times in the year and he says, what is going on? So what, what happened was my boss, my former boss, lovely woman, she really had me back and she knew I had addiction issues. I had my first panic attack in the job and all and I told her about my addiction issues. She knew I was on methadone. She was from a lovely area but she just really tried to look after me with that. But I tried to get in on time. I, try, I Do you know what the one thing was? I was very good at my job. I was very technically minded and it was certain, we worked in the graphics department and even though I was bloody strung out the bits, I was the only one that could do certain tasks within the job so as bad as I was my abilities were recognised and people thought I was an alcoholic that was the big one most people thought I was an alcoholic and there was loads of boozers in the job so they didn't want to be getting rid of the alcoholic to shine a light on them so alcohol protected me in the job but it got to the stage where it was just so bad. Like we worked in the pharma industry and I'm doing, I'm doing a, a cor I do corporate work and I do, do these courses for the corporate industry and I'm working for Sanofi at the moment. And I remember Sanofi, the company coming to audit air jobs. They were doing an audit on our company to make sure everything was up to scratch. And the quality control manager used to say, uh, she used to ring up ahead and says, can you hide Brian in the dark room? Oh, so they'd hide me in the dark room so the customers wouldn't see me. That's how bad it got in the end. And there was just such love. It was like a family. It's the, the originals of the job. I was one of the originals. I mean, they looked after me, but it was a form of enabling. But it got to the stage where we merged with another company and all these new people came in and everyone was like, what's the story with your man? How's, what's going on there? So he goes asleep. He's had sleep half the time. What? They were like blown away. And all of a sudden the light was shone on me and the people that had grew up with me were like, oh my God, like what have we allowed happen to happen here? And I went in, I shouldn't be laughing at all these things, but it is funny. But I went in, the job were trying to get rid of me and it was the factory manager and the other main man in the job. And I was calling for a meeting and my two really good friends out of job who I worked with were also the father of the chapel and the shop steward. And we went into a meeting to save my job because apparently I couldn't work anymore and I was going to sleep. And after the meeting at the table, I walked out and I says, lads, I think that went all right, did it? And he's looking at me, he says, Brian, you fell asleep. You fell asleep in the mean. Your head was on the table and we were all looking at each other. So I just goofed off like full of benzos, full of tablets. So that was the end. That was the end for me. I lost my job, lost everything and it just really went to crap after that. Was was that the was that the end? Was that the demise then of, of like, because you know didn't have any finances to be able to yeah. fund your habit anymore. Yeah, and I was 50 grand in debt as well um, at that stage. And the problem was... I owed money to money lenders, credit union, banks, credit cards, drug dealers. There was just little bits of everything everywhere. And even drug dealers wouldn't give me drugs to sell to feed me habit anymore. I was too bad for them. You know, that way I was, I was untrustworthy to them. So I got to the stage I had no way of feeding me habit. I was on death store, truly on death store. I had nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. And that was the first time that I actually tried to get break free from addiction. And that's your turning point. That was the turning point. That was a complete. That was the complete turning point for me. And that was uh, that was August two thousand and thirteen. What age? Yeah? I was twenty five. Twenty five, and I had just. I my nan had just died. It was as brutal it was because my nan had me back. She wouldn't let anyone. He looks great. Wouldn't let anyone talk bad of me. And she never seen me in recovery. So I'm devastated with that. But um, I remember going to the clinic and says, "Look, I want to try to get clean." 
And he says, right, we'll try to get you into a detox. But because I was taking so many benzos, he says, you have to get off the benzos first. Because I wanted to go to the lantern, which you had to be down to 40 or 60 mils. I can't remember what it was. And I had to be off benzos. So I says, I'll get off. I'll stop doing the benzo. And he says, you can't. You'll have to do a benzo detox because you're taking so many for so many years. And I had to wait eight weeks. I think it was St. Francis Farm. You're going to send me somewhere else to do a benzo detox or a different detox. And I says, I can't wait eight weeks. I says, I have to do this now. And he says, you'll kill yourself. You could kill yourself. Don't do it. But I went against her advice and I wouldn't ask, wouldn't advise anyone to do this because it did nearly kill me. And you can, uh, you can die from cold turkey from benzos, benzos and yeah. alcohol as well. Yeah, alcohol as well. Through the, through the, through the seizures. Yeah. And I had, I call it two days into that home detox, not only the most painful night of my life, it was the most important night of my life. And I woke up, blood everywhere. I had, did have a convulsive seizure and I split my tongue through the convulsions. I split my tongue down the middle, blood all over the place. And that was the point for me. I landed in the hospital later that night. My family got me off to the hospital, but he rang an ambulance. And I was so broken, emotionally, mentally and physically broken by that moment. That something just shifted inside me. I think that was the, they often say, like, I didn't go down the fellowship route, but they often say it's a spiritual solution. But I think I was absolutely broken to the core and I was crack at the ego, some kind of spiritual thing where something had shifted inside me. And I just, I don't know what it was. I just knew I couldn't use anymore, but I was so broken. But by the time, four weeks later, by the time I actually landed in an opiate detox to get off methadone, there was like this energy inside of me that I might actually have a life again. I think I, I think something has changed. It was like I was looking through the world through a different lens, still terrified, still afraid. Like I remember being asked to do mindfulness for the first time and focus on your breath. And I says, I'm afraid of my breath. I can't focus on my breath. And he says, do it through the nostrils. And I done mindfulness through the nostrils for the first time. Cold air going in, hot air going out. And it was like a miracle. It was like, oh my God, I can focus on that bodily sensation. This is like a miracle. Sounds bizarre saying that, but it was like a miracle. And I start reading about psychology in there for the first time. I start reading books about Eastern philosophy, meditating for the first time, talking to a psychologist for the first time. And there was just this shift. And it was like this intense hunger to learn about the human mind, to learn about what is going on in our bodies? Why are we so broken? How can we, how can I help other people to feel what I'm feeling now? Because even though I was in the height of a, of a heroin detox, if I just felt it incredible, felt horrific physically and the fever and all of those elements towards it as well. But there was this weird, I, I, I don't like the word spiritual, but this weird energetic shift inside of me that if I could go back to any time in my life to relive for 24 hours, I would go back to the two days before my first day clean. I was up one night at three o'clock in the morning and I was just blown away by all these books. Maybe it was a manic episode, I don't know, but it just it shifted something inside of me that I could go and have a career in this stuff and, and, and it just it set the tone. Is there any um, psychological theory or perspective on that, what we would call spiritual awakening, that shift of the ego where the compulsion and craving to use is lifted and the frame of mind around addiction and recovery shifts. There could be 10, 15 years struggling to try and get it and then something happens and it's like, Timmy had it, I had it, you very articulately put it there as well. Some people don't get it. Yeah. Is there, a, I think is there any explanation for it? 
There's, there's not really right because when you look at change, and I've, I've, I've sort of asked a couple of really big experts, um, Stephen Porges of Dust Polyvagal Theory. I got on the, I got on a call with him recently, and we chatted about that. And when you look at the biology of that, it, it's changes over time. Same with habits and behavioural change; it's over time. But a spiritual shift is just this light bulb comes on and something shifts. And we, again, we were sort of chatting earlier on about Anthony DeMello's book Awareness, and um, we were touching on that, and he talks about the knows that the drugs are killing them they know heroin's not good for them they know alcohol's not good but they're not aware and once you become aware everything changes and for me it was like the lights came on I was like what was I doing and there was one little theory in psychology that I seen it's called a pivotal learning experience where it's like all of the lights come on at the same time and you connect the dots of loads of things but one little thing triggers all of those things now I think that's a psychological way of explaining something that can't really be explained and I, I can completely understand it. I just want to come in uh, and just give my little bit on it. So if you look at all the different people, look at us, like something happened in our lives for us to be sitting here yeah. away from alcohol and drugs and that lifestyle. And you look at the likes of Eckhart Tolle, right? He had an awakening. It was completely different. Yeah. Something different happened to him. But if you look at what we all had in common, we all had a lot of pain, emotional pain. Yeah. We're all at the end. No, there was bucket loads of different stuff that we could have easily stopped on, but we weren't ready. Yeah. You see? And it, it's just that timing. There's no explanation for it. Yeah. There's no explanation for it. Do you know later on in life, you look back at your life and you ask yourself, how in the name of God didn't I die then? Or then? Or then? Or then? Maybe the answer is this. Maybe the answer is you weren't supposed to die. Mm. Maybe the answer is you're supposed to be here doing the work you're doing now. You know? And sometimes it doesn't work out like that for some people. And because they're not as fortunate as us here. And we've we've something really grateful to look be grateful for. And we're sitting here, we're able to share our stories. And maybe the answer is is pain. When you hit your boiling point in pain, you get a glimpse of awareness in your life where you look at it and you just become aware for the first time. This is my experience. Yeah. You become aware for the first time. You stop fighting. The mind is clear. And this voice comes in and says, you can't, what's your life going to be like? You can't do this no more. You cannot do this no more. And that is the stunning starting point to everything else. You can't look back in your life and say, why, why didn't I die here or there, there, there? It's not till you do the work in yourself and you get some clarity as years go on, yeah. you start to understand this stuff. And that's my little bit of an explanation. I don't know, is it the same as everybody else's? But for me, I hit my boiling point in pain, loneliness, fear, guilt, sadness. I hit it. I was on my own. I wanted to take my own life. And just, I gave up. And when I gave up, the that's, voice came in. That's then. it. It's the giving up. Do you know? It's the giving up. It's the stopping the fight. That was, that was, that was, that was the, that was the point. That was the one point that I actually, I remember lying in the hospital and I thought it was brain damaged. I had this experience where I was looking at this fire extinguisher hanging on the wall. I started to slumped over and I just ended up just staring at this fire extinguisher on the wall. And, I, I had this realisation that I couldn't label it. It was like, what's that? And I couldn't label it. And I started looking around the rest of the room. It was like my brain wasn't working. And I says, that's, you've destroyed your brain. You're fucked. Game over. That's brain damage. And I remember just thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't fight this anymore. I give up. 
And I think that was the moment, that that exact moment. I just lay back down and I felt a sense of peace come over me instead of just being overwhelmed because I thought it was brain damage. And for me, that was that giving up was monstrous. For uh, When I was in the detox, which was just only a few months before yourself, uh, you know, just to get into the detox and to have a bed and be able to put your clothes into a wardrobe and all these things, you know, like basic needs met for the first time. And getting the realisation then, like you're talking about a few different things, joining the dots at the same time, coming together, maturity, consequences from addiction, loneliness, pain, yeah. shame, guilt, <clears throat> looking around, using with people that you would never have associated with if there weren't drugs involved, Be- being around situations that made you feel very uncomfortable, but you know, you've nowhere else to go or nobody else will take you in. This type of... I remember being up in the detox and... Uh, there was a lot of Dalmain came in. Now, Dalmain aren't the nice tablets. They're an awful taste. <laughs> yeah. But you take them, you know. Yeah. It was my first time ever refusing drugs in there. Wow. And I, 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 it was like that. It was that surrender. I was like, you know what? I could take the drugs, try and pass the urine, try and weave my way and connive my way around yeah. it. So, but that doesn't work out for me no more. And wow. I'm just going to take myself away from all that negativity now. And I'm just going to remove and... Give up, I, I don't know what I'm just gonna give this my best shot now. Does if I get thrown out of here, there's nowhere to go. I burnt all my bridges, I've tried all the ways and means of using. I want use D-Dens, I use Annex, I want injectile smoke, I want drink vodka, drink lager. It didn't matter what it was, it always ended up in the same place, you know. Yeah. But that's surrendering. But half of me, maturity was a big part of mine. It was like getting a little bit getting a little bit older. And having you know, exhausted all the ways and means of using and coming to the realisation that this is the end of the road for you. And sometimes it might happen a little bit later for yourself. To me, it's a little bit around the same time as me. Yes. Yeah. But the point I was trying to make really is once you're alive, it cannot, like your turning point might be next week, but you always go again. And you don't ever just accept and give up. Yeah. Because it can happen for you later or earlier. Yeah, and I think the key point is, like, and I'm thinking of our three stories here, like, we were three, it sounds like we were three hopeless cases, and I often get people coming to me saying, there's just no hope, there's just no hope, there's always hope, it's very hard to see, but you know, just, as you said, it could be just around the corner, it's like the perfect storm of lots of these things happening at the same time, and it's just having faith that there could be hope for other people as well. Do you know, a lot of people, when they come into recovery, and uh, they feel like that they have a lot of energy and time to catch up and stuff like that. And they run with the education thing. Myself and Timmy did. So did you. Yeah. What was your education journey? What did you start out with? We know you finished with the PhD. What did you start out with little courses first? Or? No. So I was, I, I basically very, coming from such a long addiction, I was full of ego in terms of seeing the world from my perspective only. So I says, I want to learn about the human mind. I'm going to do a degree in psychology. So I thought psychology was going to be all about addiction. For some bizarre reason, I thought I was going to be learning loads about addiction and psychology. That wasn't a snippet about addiction <laughs> and psychology. It was all about statistics. Yeah. I was very lucky that I have actually have a bit of a matsy head and I enjoy statistics. But something that we touched on, you mentioned unmet needs. And I think 
when you break free from addiction, and I think one of the things to have a successful recovery, whatever it actually looks like for me, it was it was for education, but it helped me to meet my young met needs because I love learning mm-hmm. and it allowed me to connect with other people as well. I really love connecting with new people. So those unmet needs made it easier for me because I was meeting those needs that I had. And all of a sudden then it was like this reinforcement thing where I was getting rewarded by academia because I found I was actually quite good at that and I was I was catching it and I was learning it and that sort of set me on an, on another on another road as well so really the whole the whole journey for me with academia it was it was psychology first um, and then that sort of brought me away from addiction because I says right it's not all about addiction it's about the human mind and I learned more about my experience says I didn't really have an addiction problem I had a mental health problem so I went down that lines and I, I, I often say like I nearly switched addictions. I don't like using that terminology, but I was obsessed about learning. And that obsession got me to score really high marks in psychology because, again, ego, tint of ego as well. I wanted to be the best. That's That was, I wanted to be the best in psychology. But that sort of drive and that competitiveness really pushed me on. And I got a scholarship down for, for Trinity College for to do the PhD. And I tried to redirect myself then in the world of addiction, like my PhD was looking at mindfulness interventions in early for people in early recovery coming out of a treatment facility. And that that research got ruined by COVID, as I mentioned previously. But then I started looking into other models. We were looking at impulsivity and wanting more and people in addiction. So my whole research journey then went back into addiction circles then as well. But really, again, looking at the, the drivers of addiction rather than the addiction itself. Mm. Was it- be interested in finishing out the first piece of research you did. Um, no, first of I haven't got the, the, it's, it, the money was, so it was basically a funded PhD and it's, it's a terrible shame. So we needed about 65, 70 people to go through the intervention and like it was a lot of work. So I got a guy that was doing mindfulness interventions, eight week mindfulness intervention and we had 30 people gone through that intervention, like 30 people in waves of 10. Loads of, I think we had 40 actually gone through. So we'd spent about 30 grand paying all the people to go through to, to, to do, deliver the interventions. And it's basically the amount of time is just not feasible. I'm not in academia anymore, so I'm not doing research anymore. Only a little bit. I don't do much, but it's, it's not feasible. And it's a terrible shame. It's What's a terrible shame. What's your life like now? My life today is. I'm incredibly happy and and I think that's the most important thing to say. Incredibly happy, incredibly grateful, mostly for the people and the connections that I have in my life. And I'm I have a constant battle of trying to spend more time with the people that I love and the people that are important to me versus my work because I love my work, which is a, a great complaint. It's like having three strikers and I can only play two. Mm. So I love me work and, and I'm not I'm not giving out about that, but it's finding out what's important. So I, I do a lot of work in uh, co- the corporate world. I do a lot of courses, a lot of keynote talks. I also do a lot of work in schools as well. So uh, I, I ran a mentorship program for a school in Talladega for the last two years. It was incredibly rewarding. So for me going forward, I was probably doing like a couple of hours a week in this for the school work and then the rest in the corporate world trying to build a business for myself. And over the next five to 10 years, what I want to do is, is to create a business where I'm making money so I can give more time to the skills more time to kids and less time in the workplace so really like a Robin Hood kind of uh, model get paid money to give give yeah. back to society yeah so tell me this okay when when you stopped using you came out of the hospital okay there's 10 years then of recovery you got straight into education straight away straight right? away okay so 
Me, I went to therapy for many, many years. I went to EA. I've done mm -hmm. lots of different things. James would be very more intellectual and he was able to grasp um, information a lot easier than I would. So I had to do a lot of meditation. What was your go-to to help you with the trauma that you drank, you drugged on? What, what were you using now to be able to help you to heal yourself internally? Mindfulness was one element of it, a big element of it. Um, good nutrition and exercise. And they were the three biggest components of the self-healing process for and me. counselling? Did, did you go to RER? Did, did you hit any of those services? I didn't go to counselling. I was nearly, I was nearly obsessed with the psychology of the mind and I it just want, sense. it made sense and there I just were. wanted to learn about it. So I, I, when I came out of treatment, I was on this, they call it the pink fluffy cloud. And I stayed on that for a long time, but I was disconnected from my emotions, mm. selectively disconnected from negative emotions. I jumped on those positive emotions. And it was weird the way I was able to do that. And it was only in the latter years that I really connected with my own emotions fully. And I started really feeling the pain that I caused my family that, and then I start suffering in terms of feeling the depths of those emotions that I really start creating deep connections with people. But the process, it was like my brain was protecting me from going there early doors because I don't think I would have been able to cope with it, to be quite yeah, honest. Yeah. And it was only after four or five years in a slower process that I was able to really go through go through that whole process. You started to really internally heal. Then. Yeah. And that, that's a very fair point, what you just made there, that for the first four or five years, it was like unconsciously your body and your mind were protecting you because you weren't ready go to there. go there to this area. So you were actually busy anyway, getting an education yeah. and learning. And we were speaking before, beforehand, me and you, we were talking about the mind-body connection, you know, through... Um, through maybe memories and how your your thought will bring up a memory and then that memory is probably connected to emotion, maybe fear or shame, guilt, whatever it may be. It could be happy to our grief or whatever. And what happens then is you feel that emotion in the body and then the mind will snowball to justify the way you're feeling. It will take more shameful thoughts, more thoughts to make yeah. it more fearful. <clears throat> and that's how it is. You started to learn all this stuff at a, uh, early in recovery and it started to make it sense. And with the mindfulness then that you were using at the same time, it was allowing you during the mindfulness when all this emotional stuff, because listen, this is very, very fair to, uh, to make this point. When people who have had a lot of trauma in their lives are just normal people in general, when they want to sit and do mindfulness, everything comes up here. Yeah. Everything, everything that the mind can possibly bring up, negative, critical stuff will come in. And at the beginning, it'll say, oh God, I can't do this because when I'm sitting down, all this stuff is coming up. It's about letting go. We spoke, it's about giving up and stop fighting. It's about yeah. stop fighting all this stuff and feel it. And it's about allowing it, allowing it in. And um, there's so much great information out there to be able to, to do this stuff. We were talking about Dr. Jordan Spencer. He was the guy that really helped me, you know, and, and your own kind of way of, of getting to where you are today was the academic and learning and be able to put into action. You know, yeah. what would you recommend for somebody else? There's so many different variations. Would you recommend in somebody just finding out what works for them? I would say keep it simple. Keep it simple. 
make it easy. There too would put my and you have to enjoy it. If you're pushing against something and you don't enjoy it, you're not going to continue. It's not going to be sustainable. So if you absolutely hate mindfulness, it's not for you. Probably just not for you. Yeah, I enjoyed exercise, so I went with that. I enjoyed mindfulness, even though I found it. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. There was something about it grabbed me in and I done that for a while. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't practice mindfulness every day now. I'm more inclined to do breath work now instead because I enjoy that more. So what I would say for people is take baby steps. Don't try to do like an hour a day because you just won't be able to sustain that. Baby steps, do something that's sustainable and try to find something that you kind of enjoy that you can mm. keep doing on a long-term basis. That is really the key. Yeah. If people want to contact you to give you feedback or say hi or book you for a corporate, how can they do that? Best place to go was the website. I'm actually going to have my new it's a website there the last few years, but my new website should be up now in about two weeks. New fancy website. So it's brianpenny.com or Instagram. It's brianpenny78 there to two. Definitely the two best places to go. Description is super stuff. Super stuff. Love the chat, lads. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see everybody next week. God bless. 